We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Chess Books Recaptured. Hopefully, those of you listening know by now that this is a monthly break from your typical interview where I and a friend, in this case, a good friend, get together and recap a chess book, sometimes of great renown, sometimes of less renown. Um, But this one is of great renown, one of the true classics in the chess world, my 60 memorable games by Bobby Fischer. And I could not be more excited. Other than Bobby Fischer himself, I cannot think of, (laughs) of who I would rather have discussing this with me. It is one of my oldest friends in the chess world, not old in age, but I've known him for the longest um, he's, you've probably heard his name in the closing credits because who knows, is he an IM elect? Is he just a FIDE master? He has three IM norms, but never made the rating. Now he's busy being a lawyer and a dad and stuff like that. But he has deigned to join us this, this month to discuss my 60 memorable games. And without further ado, let's bring in Donnie Ariel. Donnie, how are you? 
Good. Thank you so much, Ben. It's wonderful to be on your show. Um, I think this is maybe the number one chess podcast in the world. Uh, I think it has to be. Um, so I'm really glad to be here, and um, I'd love to talk about the book and anything else you'd like to talk about. Excellent. <laughs> Super excited. Um, and Donnie, of course, you picked this book. Um, I mean, obviously, people are clamoring to discuss this book, but once you planted your flag, I, obviously, I'm going to give it to a good friend of mine. Um, so what meaning does my 60 memorable games have for you, Donnie? Uh, well, for me personally, when I started playing chess, um in the early 90s, it was the book that contributed the most, I think, to my development as a chess player. Uh, I gained a lot of rating points, studying it very, very carefully. And um, also, it was significant because I don't know how it is now when you're starting to play chess, but certainly then, Fisher was like a, a god in the background of the chess world. And there were many people at the chess club who had known him or... Uh, you know, some quite well. I mean, Lombardi or uh, even Zuckerman, both of them are quoted in this book. Their analysis is quoted or Asa Hoffman. There are many people like that. But for me, Fisher was this god. And even when he returned in 1992, it's I wasn't even that interested in that match because it was like almost like it wasn't the real Fisher. The real Fisher was this mythic lone genius conquering the world. And um, yeah, I, I'm so I mean, that's it. Yeah. So even to this day, um, I think what's valuable about the book is is both if you're interested in Fisher, then it's sort of definitely a must read, but it's also an excellent game collection. And um, if you like that kind of book, then I think it's certainly worth reading. And I'm sure we'll get into uh, more details about that. Yeah, an absolute classic. And we should mention Donnie joining us from Brooklyn, New York, not all that far from 560 Lincoln Place where Fisher uh, grew up. So yeah, he definitely casts a long shadow in New York in particular. Um, so how... Have you been by his place? I know we've discussed this at some point, Donnie. Did you ever stalk the house that Fisher grew up I, in? Uh, I did. I did actually take a look at it. I looked, you still look quite close. Um, and it's a pretty nondescript uh, apartment building. Uh, recently, in preparing for this interview, I also reread uh, Profile of a Prodigy by Frank Brady, which is a biography. And they mentioned a couple of local addresses. So I looked them all up on Google Maps, and they're certainly all quite close. Uh, I don't think there's anything to commemorate Fisher there. I don't think there's any plaques or anything, um, but it's cer certainly very interesting to see where he lived. Yeah, of course, commemorating Fisher is um, unfortunately um, a less of an automatic thing than it might have been under different circumstances, given given uh, the, the stuff he said at the end of his life and the um, unfortunate uh, views that he espoused and mental illness that he ultimately <laughs> developed, but... But sure. yeah, I mean, we can we we can separate the art from the artist for the most part. For yeah, I think it's good to take a moment to perhaps to just address the fact that um, well, certainly my view, I don't want to speak for you, is that obviously Fisher was somewhat mentally ill. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to opine on it too much. But um, for me, I think it's certainly OK to uh, remember his chess and and remember him Um uh, I don't think we need to cancel him. For, yeah, <laughs> to use I mean, and it's also impossible to do. I mean, I when I used to teach chess to little kids, I would sometimes think about what whether it was okay I was showing these games, and no, no kid ever asked me. No one ever said anything. But what I was prepared to say was, I was going to tell the kids like, "Have any of you ever been sick?" And of course, they would all say yes. They've had you know tons of illnesses. Kids are sick all the time. And then I would explain, well, some people are can be sick in the head. Um, so. 
I just thought it was impossible to teach chess in the United States without mentioning Fisher. And it, it, you know, it's not like it just uh, like a movie director. You're like, oh, you just don't watch his movies. I mean, the guy was champion of the world. And uh, I think the gap between him and number two, um, you know, I looked at the ratings today. I think it was 125 points after the 1972 match. I don't I mean, I don't think it's there's been a gap like that since then. I mean, nothing close to that. Yeah, it j- just boggles the mind. And yeah. just to give give a little more info about my own history with this book, it's it's not all that different than Donnie's because it was a formative book for me as well. I was just showing Donnie my dog-eared descriptive notation copy that I poured over as a teenager. And Donnie and I, Donnie, to his credit, is a couple years younger than me, but um, we're around the same age. And, you know, even in the early 90s, around the time that both of us were digging into this book, I mean, uh, chess, chess information was just so much more scarce. So this book was just like an absolute goldmine. And we're going to share some quotes from some people who were alive when the book came out um, in a minute. But I also just want to mention a few people. Obviously, I think everyone listening to the show has probably heard of this book. It's been recommended on the show many times by I Am David Proust. When I played the old I Am Mark Dvoretsky interview with Fred Wilson, of course, Dvoretsky himself recommended it. Uh, GM Matthew Sadler and Natasha Regan mentioned it. Uh, Adult Improvers Jeff and Tomich, Stuart Rachels, R.B. Ramesh. And of course, there's some some crazy, not crazy in the actual crazy sense, but just um, effusive quotes about it by... Um, you know, quite well-known chess players such as Gary Kasparov, who said in the New York Review of Books that his book, 60 Most Memorable, I always say most, his 60 Memorable Games was one of his earliest and most treasured chess possessions. And Alex Fishbein raised the bar even more. I want to give a shout out to um, American Chess Magazine. They did a commemorative issue of uh, 60 memorable games, although it was really more about Fisher generally. But Fishbein wrote a little column about Fisher's end games in which he said, I consider this book to be the most profound chess book of all time. Um, so without, we'll talk more about contextualizing it, Donnie, but do you do you agree with uh, GM Fishbein's statement? Um, it's certainly a, a strong statement. It, it's definitely an excellent book. Um, compared to, I've read a lot of game collections. So that was the kind of uh, book that I like to study. And I think that, um, as an aside, I think that's good advice for players trying to improve that, that they should study the kind of things that they like, uh, sort of like exercise. The, the best kind of exercise is the kind that you like, because you're actually going to do it. So, uh, if I compare it to Alakine's game collection, though, I read the, like the nun version, which was, um, uh, very good, or like uh, 100 Selected Games, or Tal's book. Uh, they're all very good. I, I really, really like this one. I think that um, Fisher gives a, a more accurate impression than a lot of writers about what it's actually like to play the game. So he will often say he didn't see one move ahead. Like, he didn't see the move the guy's about to play, or he didn't see against Geller. The point of Geller's defense is like that, he, like he, Fisher's variation that he's counting on is going to hang checkmate, and like right. you know, a very simple checkmate. So the book is is littered with comments like that, and you you really get the feel of what it's like to play. I think a little more than if you um, if I could contrast it with let's say Kasparov's books, which are you know I certainly have nothing bad to say about them, uh, but if you're trying to read those books, it's a little bit heavy in the analysis department. If you're trying to actually get to the end of the game which to me was always what felt like the accomplishment was, okay, I played through this one game today. It's it's going to be a little tough to make it through all those variations. And that's, you know, it's extremely valuable. You, I mean, don't get me wrong. You would learn a ton if you did that. But 
you're you're not going to be calculating all those variations at the board. You're going to be doing your best, and then you're going to be saying things like Fisher, like I hope this was going to work out because I thought it, thought it was good. Um, but uh, you're certainly not going to be sure in any respect. Um, and the games are very, very good. And also Fisher had a style that is, uh, I think, a lot easier to emulate, which is not to say that it's uh, easy to play as well as him. But if you were to look, and uh, you know, it's true about Magnus Carlsen too, um, maybe Karpov or somebody, if you compare them to Kasparov or Alakine, like when I would, when I study Alakine's games, I thought they were very, very impressive. But it was very obvious to me, I'm never going to play a game in my life like any of these games. But if you look at the games in my 60 memorable games, there are a lot of slugfests, but there are also a lot of games where not much happens, where it's like an end game, they move around for a while, and then it's over, Fisher wins. And it's, uh, I think that's easier to try to try to play like that than it is to play like uh, really wild tactics. Yeah, it's it's a really good point. Um, and yeah, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I don't have it as in quite the same hollowed breath that GM Fishbine does. Um, I had I had written to uh, shout out again to Fred Wilson, who's been on the show and has a, a bookstore, um, rare and used chess books in Union Square that you guys should visit if you're ever in New York or if you live in New York. Um, so I had mentioned to Fred that in in revisiting this book for the first time in a long time, I wasn't totally blown away. And it's not it's not a negative thing. It's just that that chess has changed. But I agree with you that the the level of analysis to me is is right. He admits his errors, but we should also point out, I mean, he has like staggeringly complex lines sometimes that he's really just saying what he saw at the board. And obviously, uh, I mean, sometimes an engine can poke holes in it, but sometimes it's like exactly right, holds up perfectly to a modern engine. Um, so I feel like it's um it's it's an amazing book, whether it's the best ever, who's to say? Yeah. But, but it, well worth your time. It's true that a lot of the notes, if you were to put them in an engine, which I, I played over all the games with an engine in, in preparation for this podcast, a lot of the notes are wrong, as I think any human analysis would be. But I do think people should keep in mind that it's not really that, in my opinion, it's not that significant if the notes are wrong. I mean, if you're talking about an opening position, then it definitely, like, you better have the analysis right. But I think what you really learn from is understanding the point of Fisher's variations. So if there's some small error there somewhere, you're not going to get that exact position. What's going to help you is that you understood the variations he gave. You understood also all the sub variations, which a lot of them are going to be one and two move tactics, maybe three move tactics. And that's what most games are decided by. That's what most games in this book are decided by. So certainly that's what most games uh Basically, a practice at all levels are, is decided by ultimately, even though at the GM level, they may have fallen for some two mover because they were under some other tremendous pressure. Um, so I still think the notes are very, very good. Um, but it is true, of course, especially in the sharper games that uh, the analysis isn't perfect. Um, like against also like against Olofsson, he was like, he was a lot worse for more of the time than he thought. I mean, you could give a lot of examples like that. Um, but to me, it doesn't detract um, very, very much from the book. Um, I don't know. Do you think that someone should read it with a computer? I, I think no, but I'd be curious what you think, Ben. Uh, I'm such a like bad student when it comes to this stuff. Like, I just want to check the computer when I'm reading it, you know? Um, I think in a perfect world, you probably shouldn't. I mean, especially if you're into chess history. Like, if you just want to know what the person was thinking and, like, you know, you're still going to get 80% correct analysis. And um, so 
I think probably not, but I was sometimes had a super strong engine when I was looking at it. Certainly a few games I looked um, on my computer with stronger engines. Sometimes I looked, um, uh, sometimes I would be reading it and playing through the moves on my phone, uh, which we'll talk about when we talk about what edition we used. And in those cases, sometimes I would have a computer and sometimes I wouldn't. But generally, I mean, you know, obviously I interview strong players every week and some of them say never, ever have the computer on. And some of them say it's fine. So like, who, what difference does it make what my opinion is, you know? Yeah, that's true. I think that, um, well, the other thing is, you know, Fisher sometimes gives very light notes. Like he might just give some variation and say white's white's winning here. And I think, uh, for those trying to improve, they should definitely, when you're actually studying the game, they should make sure that they agree with everything he says, or they have exhausted their analytical ability to the extent that they can say, I just don't agree, but it's not because I didn't spend the time. Because I think that is where a lot of the learning um, when you study a game collection comes from, is that the author gives a lot of variations, and you play them over and understand them. But there will also be a lot of things that they look wrong to you, like uh, this ending is winning, or there's just a tremendous number of things like that. I mean, I remember I stopped reading this book, um, The Art of Chess Analysis by Timon, because I heard it was such such amazing analysis. And then like on the first page, I thought what he said was totally wrong. Now, in retrospect, probably I was wrong, if I had to guess. But um, that's like more, more of an extreme example. Um, well, also, you're a pretty strong player. I mean, I don't know what your level was when you read this, read Timon's book, but... Yeah, I was, I mean, I was... I don't know, 23 or 2400 maybe. Um, but in this book, it's there are, as you said, there are some very complicated notes. Like, for example, you mentioned Botvinnik, that he gives us a lot of variations. But a lot of the times, the variations are not going to be like that. It's going to be much, much simpler. And if you don't understand the variation, almost always, for example, against Rosalimo, he says, no credit for other moves. Oh, yeah, at the end. So, yeah. And his point is, uh, you know, if you read the book, you'll see the position, is that if you make another move, there's going to be a discovery and you lose your queen. Right? So... Obviously, when you're reading that, you don't have to say, oh, no credit for other You have to understand what he's saying. Now, that's a more obvious example, but you get examples all the time where he'll say one side is better or not, and it will really behoove you to uh, to exhaust the position yourself. Uh, someone pointed this out to me when I was a little boy, maybe 12 years old at the Manhattan Chess Club sitting and reading this book. Uh, the dominant player in the club at the time was Kamran Shirazi, who was an interna international master from Iran, and... Um, he, he told me, you know, you're not supposed to just not, because I was barely looking at the board. I was like making the moves. He's like, you know, you're not supposed to just make the moves. You need to think about what you're doing. Right. So I think that's a, maybe an obvious point, but one worth making. Yeah. And I just wanted to throw in, like you mentioned, reading something and thinking it's wrong. I think the more common experience for people might be just reading something and being like, well, I have no idea, you know, like just not seeing why they're saying what they're saying. So he might say, OK, you do this, this and this. And now white is winning. And you're like, well, why? And but it still gets to the same solution, which is that you just have to keep asking yourself questions um, until you feel like you have a better sense. Or like you say, at some point, you just have to give up. You know, life goes on. And, yeah. you know, um, then, then you could ask the computer, maybe. Yeah, exactly. But truth, but yeah. but have an active, inquisitive mindset when you're reading through the book. For sure. um, so I wanted to share a couple because this book. Um, I mean, it's so hard to do justice for us, you know, born in the 1970s after Fisher had disappeared. Um, 
for us, of course, we appreciate the legend of Fisher having grown up in the U.S., but we didn't live through it. And I thought it would be cool to to just get a couple quotes about what it was like to live through it when this book came out, because there's a, a like storied history of uh, sort of will they or won't they with this book coming out. I mean, Fisher obviously generally had a lot of um, a lot of indecision about uh, doing, you know, whether he's going to play this match, whether he's going to show up for whatever tournament, so it's on and so of, forth. Bit of an understatement. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this book was no exception. I mean, it was in the works for many, many years and it underwent many different titles. For a long time, it had 52 games and like it was close to publication at some point. And then he changed his mind and he wasn't going to publish it at all because he felt like it revealed too much of his thinking. And then it was finally released in 1969. Um, according to Larry Evans, who is his good friend, and we should say the person who helped him with the book and wrote the, the quite memorable forewords, and we'll, I'm sure we'll discuss the forewords at, at some point. But um, according to Larry Evans, he finally decided to publish it in 1969 um, because he, f- oh, here's the quote. He said he was feeling depressed about the world and felt that there would be a nuclear holocaust soon. He felt he should enjoy whatever money he could get from it before it was too late. So that was the reason the Fisher, at least according to one of his good friends, Larry Evans, finally released the book in 1969. So a lot of back and forth, but to bring it back to people's reaction. So I was just wondering, like, what's it like? First of all, it's very rare that a sitting world number one writes a book explaining their thoughts. I mean, shout out to my friends at Chessable. Magnus just put out his course um, explaining, going through five of his games, but it's not really the same now where you have the post-game interviews and everyone's watching online. Um, Back then, things were much more shrouded in mystery, and I think the people were a lot less polished. And plus, it's just writing a book has such a a degree of uh, dedication and information was so scarce then that the idea that this person who's, you know, American icon, best player in the world is going to write a book explaining his thoughts um, when there's like, you know, you might be able to get five chess books at the library if you're lucky and, you know, they might be for beginners. So I have one quote from Fred Wilson because um, I wanted to reach out to him to ask what it was like. And here's Fred. He said, I began playing in 1961. So this book came out in 69. He said, in 1969, I was married with kids working six days a week and watching my rating slip from 2189 to 2149 when I even had time to play and probably not able to study the games well. But I did read it from cover to cover. By now, I've done so four or five times. Um, and then he said some stuff um, criticizing my critiques, which I'm, I, you know, I... <laughs> My critiques are very mild, so I don't want to emphasize them so much. Let's but hear them. Let's hear them. Well, no, I already mentioned just generally. Um, well, actually. Oh, he didn't agree with what you've said so far. Yeah. I mean, he didn't agree with. Um, I I just I just like more personal recollection. And I had mentioned that in an email. But, yeah. um, but in thinking about it more, I mean, it's not Fisher's personality. You know, he was he was a guarded person. So it's it's he, kind of he gives person. I mean, he talked from the perspective of the chess. He gives. Yeah. Personal yeah. insights, but not about his like personal emotional state, too. I mean, he does say he panicked against Petrosian and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, he's not going to say, oh, I was disappointed. I started thinking about my mother. That's not. Yeah, that's not. Gonna be yeah. And, of, you know, something like the life and games of Mikhail Tall. I always yeah. just like a little more narrative thrown in. That's just the way I'm wired. But again, that's just not this book. It's not it really shouldn't even be taken as a critique of this book. It's just that's not what he set out to write. Um, so anyway, that was Fred's perspective. And then Fred also emailed a couple other people. And this is from um, 
a gentleman by the name of Richard Reich, who I don't know, but I really enjoyed his quote, which is, he said, I remembered how excited I was as a high school student when I learned that Bobby was writing a book of his games. At that time, I was not aware of either his earlier book nor of Bobby Fisher Teaches Chess, which is its own conversation. He says, I remember calling a bookstore in a neighboring town to pre-order it, how much I nagged my mother to drive me there to pick it up when it was in stock. Reading this book alone, plus playing perhaps 20 or 30 tournament games, got me from 1100 to 1700. In those days, books on chess were very hard to find, even Reinfeld tomes. I lived in a chess desert where the best player was a class B player who did not deign to play with patsers like me. And this is at a time when Fisher's already in 69, he was 30 points higher rated than Spassky, number one in the world. At first, I was thinking maybe it's the only time a sitting number one wrote a book, but Fred Wilson pointed out (laughs) Test of Time um, by Kasparov might be another example. But anyway, I mean, it's just cool to think about the idea that like this mythical figure comes down and publishes this book. I mean, you're calling him the world number one, which I guess you're saying is based on the rating. And I'm I'm not disagreeing with that. I mean, when it came out, I guess... I think it's quite reasonable to use the rating. But one thing I definitely notice now reading it rather than when I read it the first time is that first that he was not world champion right when he wrote this book. And it's certainly, you know, arguable whether he was world number one, maybe the last few games in the book. It's interesting that for the vast majority of the games, he's clearly not the world number one. And, you know, there's a tendency to think Fisher was sort of destined to win every game, but he was also the worst player than a lot of the players at the beginning of the book when he's playing the, the absolute world elite and he's just trying to break into that group. But okay, I'm not going to quibble too much. I mean, Kasparov wrote all, he wrote a book about his, uh, you know, the world's his first world championship match, which was one of my, my first books that I studied. It's probably not an appropriate book to read at that point. I didn't make it all the way through, but I had the two sets. I mean, this really makes me sound like a dinosaur. You know, when you read a book with a chess set, I know a lot of people probably have never done that. <laughs> it's very hard to get back to the original position if there's no diagram. So you sometimes have to have one analysis board ah. and and one for the actual game. If you really want to you know, get into yeah. Kasparov's notes, which are, you know, quite extensive. No. Yeah. Um, that, oh man, that's, that, that's cool. That takes me back. Um, and yeah, we should mention the games covered are from 1957 to 1967. So it doesn't like, like Donnie says, it doesn't include the games from his, the peak of his powers, the famous run, from 70 to 72, where he just started absolutely destroying everyone, culminating in winning the world championship. So it doesn't cover absolute peak Fisher in terms of his ability, but you can see the progression um, through the through the course of the book. Um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, but it's a valid point about like him not being necessarily the best player. Now in, he, in he definitely, I think it's, I mean, certainly the, it comes out, I think, he definitely, I think, thought he was the best player in the world. Um, certainly, well, I think, I think most of the listeners are probably familiar with Fisher's career, but just in a couple of sentences, you know, Fisher was U.S. champion at 14, and then he became a candidate for the world championship at 15. And then they had, uh, you know, a candidates tournament where he made a minus score and Tom made a big plus score. This is in 1959. Now at that time, listen, I know there's a lot of Fisher experts. I'm not, I certainly can't say what Fisher was feeling. But it seems like this was his first time playing, and he hadn't won the interzonal. He he managed to qualify. So at that point, okay, he didn't win. I guess life goes on. But then in 1962, he won the interzonal two and a half points ahead of Geller and Petrosian. And then he's playing in the Curacao Candidates Tournament. So I think at that point, he must have thought that he was going to be world champion. I mean, he crushed the interzonal. 
Um, but of course, an interzonal is a qualifying tournament. I don't know if anyone plays poker, but it's like a satellite. Everyone's just trying to get to the next level. So then in Curacao, he made uh, an even score, 14-14. Petrosian was made 17 and a half and one. Um, and Karaz and Geller were half a point behind. And I guess this is sort of what really starts Fisher like dropping out of the chess world over and over again, um, which is probably not, not the subject of this podcast, you know, to go blow, blow, blow. But the point is, at that point in 1962, and, you know, about three, about two thirds of the games are, are through 1962, he was definitely not world champion. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world. If you played like Fisher did in, even in 1958, I think for most of our, the listeners, you'd be doing ju- just fine. Um, but it is interesting to notice the, the psychological background of each game, right? When he's playing Petrosian in Porto Rose, he's, he's not playing him as I'm definitely the world champion and you're, you know, I'm going to beat you. He's, he's definitely the underdog um, for, for all his, um, you know, hubris, which is certainly he's in, he was entitled to be, uh, I don't know, Lombardi, who sometimes would speak. I took some lessons from Lombardi, who sometimes talk about Fisher. It just reminded me of him saying something to the effect of once that it was like, if you want to be a huge egomaniac, but it's fine. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I don't really disagree with that in Fisher's case. You know, if if you are this great champion, then I think it, it's fine to be to have a little bit of, of hubris. It was certainly deserved in his case, I guess is what I'm trying to say in a long way. Yeah. And I just want to throw in just for context. I mean, he was really young too. I mean, you know, oh, the, sure. the years you mentioned, he's like 1920, you know, he's yeah. born in 1943. Oh, yeah. so, so just like on the, tra- and of course this is, you know, held the youngest U S master title for many years, youngest grandmaster, et cetera. So um, he was on a trajectory where it was reasonable to extrapolate that he's, you know, he might be a world champion. It wasn't oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, but you know, you mentioning, I've mentioned before, I, I met Lombardi once or twice, but not a ton, but you haven't grown up in New York. Um, do you have any Lombardi Fisher stories that are, um, that, that you could share off the top of your head, Donnie? I guess, I don't know. He would occasionally just mention him, but it wasn't, um, I guess nothing really, nothing really that juicy. He, he once claimed to have shown him H3 against the Nidorf. Um, which, you know, I don't think that would be super surprising. And there's a lot of, there's a, I think, at least two games in this book with H3 against the Nidorf. Um, and uh, he once just talked about how uh, they studied, like, it was some incredible number of games in one night. It was like maybe 250 games that they played over, something like that. Um, and just the usual stuff, you know, he, well, one of Lombardi's biggest pieces of advice to me, and I think probably to all his students, I, I only took, you know, was only a student for a short period, but it definitely had a big impact on me, was never offer or accept draws. And that, Draws are sort of a, a, a bad thing. They're like an occupational hazard of chess um, that you don't have in most other sports. I mean, it's, you know, it can be very tempting to be like, let's just make a draw, but that's really pretty terrible for your chess. Um, so he, and he thought, you know, the Russians were very afraid to see how Fisher uh, did, you know, played very, very accurately that they couldn't find mistakes in his games and that he was, uh, so so driven to win. I think, though, of course, you know, you can take it to an e- extreme. And I noticed that in my own games, I would sometimes, or often frequently, I would say, if I saw a variation was going to be a draw, I would just refuse to play that variation. But as Fisher points out in um, the game, one of the games against, uh, I think the game against Gligerich called Castling Into It, he quotes Tarasha saying, uh, playing for the loss at some point. And, and that's definitely something 
uh, that I suffer from badly and it's, it's to be avoided. Um, and I think you see that same thing, by the way, in, uh, in the first game against Spassky in their match, uh, as we were discussing earlier, he took this poison pawn on H2. That's another example of playing for the loss. So, you know, Fisher's maximalist approach, uh, it did have some downsides. Um, so I guess the advice for the listeners is, uh, you know, sometimes the games are dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't want to throw away the half points because you're you're so intent on winning. Um, yeah, but I get Lombardi's general advice because you know tournament chess, especially classical chess, when you have to sit there and fester, you know it's tense. So when someone offers a draw and it feels marginal, or if you think about offering a draw, it's like you know I could be in the bar right now. <laughs> like, sure. why why am I doing this to myself? But I mean, um, the, the thing is, you have to ask why are they offering a draw? Like a, a very common time where you get offered a draw is when you're playing a higher rated player and you have a better position. So this happened to me, you know, many, many, many times, yeah. and almost all those games I lost actually. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it happened to me too. I can't recall a game that I won. I, I mean, I remember Sigalchik offered me a draw. And I lost. I remember Michael Mulliar offered me a draw, and I said no, and I lost. So um, it's not that you're definitely going to win the game, but if you want to improve at chess, you have to have this experience of you know playing against tough competition. You can't just agree to a draw when you get to that point. You know, there's a cliche: the hardest thing to win is a one game, and you know you need you need practice. You need practice. Yeah, no, it's good advice. Um, I, I wanted to throw in a couple of notes on the formatting of this book because you mentioned the old school story of the two chess sets, one for analysis, one for uh, the actual position of the game. And both you and I, through the course of rereading this in the past month, were texting back and forth, like, you know, because there we neither of us, I'm, you know, 98% sure there's no ebook. The book is published by Batsford. It's not on Forward Chess, you know, um, I, it's not on any of the other apps chessable doesn't have it unfortunately so we were looking for the optimal way and at first i was all excited because i found this uh someone had post someone has posted on lee chess uh one of the lee chess studies where you can just play through the 60 games of course if you go to chessgames.com i think there's a page where they list the 60 games so the games aren't hard to find but in terms of the optimal way to play through it especially if you're not using one chess set let alone two it can be a little tricky i think you and i both ended up um uh, settling on the solution of when we're playing it through, like on a tablet or on our phone, we just input the moves ourselves because that way it's um you can have the engine on, which you couldn't on the lead chess if you need it. Obviously, not always have the engine on, but otherwise, if you're in the middle of a game and you can, that you're looking at and you just want to check something on the engine uh, with the lead chess study, there was no option. So, oh. well, I, I just imported the P. I would import the PGN file to lead chess. Um, you know, the guy that entered the notes, actually, maybe we should just ask him because it seemed like it was just a setting right. that, that he had to give permission for the computer to be on. And I can't imagine why he, w- he wouldn't want that to be the case. I don't know if people read, do, I don't know, does anyone read chess books with a chess set anymore? Because I'm not exactly sure that it's the same, you know, it's, if you're playing, just playing over the variations, then it's the same thing. You could just play them over on the computer. But when it comes to now, you're going to make you know, provide your analysis of his analysis. Are you going to do it to the same extent if you're not moving around the pieces with your fingers? I'm not sure, but um, cer- certainly maybe some people are comfortable doing that. But I would just emphasize again at the risk of repeating myself that you definitely want to be in a position to do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, and I think there definitely are people who get out the chess set. I know Jesse Cry 
uh, Grandmaster Jesse Cry is a big advocate of sort of the um, analog methods, um, just to sort of feel it in your bones, you know, which, which I get, but you know, Jesse has kids, you and I have kids, Donnie, I just wouldn't be able to read a chess book if I did that, like my, my daughter's going to come prancing through the middle yeah. of the board, you know, so. But it should uh, be said that my, my reading, and I'm guessing yours too, from looking at your Faber and Favor, that beautiful black edition that seems very, very worn that you showed me is when I say like now that I played through the games, what I mean is like I made the moves and I looked at the notes, but that's, that's a very different thing than, you know, you're really studying this book because you're going to be the champion. Right? Like, yeah, no, uh, it's going to do that. Point. Then you really have to every game, like every game should take a few hours. I, I would think at least. Yeah, it's, it's very games. true. And yeah, I do one of these podcasts every month. So I couldn't give it the intent. Definitely couldn't give it the attention. I did the, the first time around, um, which, is a bummer, but still, still greatly enjoyed it. Um, so Donnie, I think we're, we're going to dig even deeper into the book, but first let's take a break and hear from Chessable. If like a lot of chess fans, you have an insatiable appetite for all things, Bobby Fisher, then you should definitely go to chessable.com and check out my great predecessors part four. Of course, this is part of Gary Kasparov's landmark series, and this one is predominantly about Bobby Fisher himself. So it goes through his life and legacy, the rise and triumph of Bobby Fisher goes through lots of his games, but of course, with an emphasis on the key moments and the motifs that you should know with Chessable's move trainer technology technology to make sure that you remember the patterns that Bobby Fisher unveiled. It's a lot of fun. So go to chessable.com and check out my great predecessors part four, as well as everything else that they have to offer. All right. And we are back. And as promised, we are ready to dig even deeper into this book, which begins, I think, as always, we like to read some sort of snippet from the beginning to give you a taste for the book. With this one, there's very little proper prose other than Larry Evans, of course, his famous introductions, which I think I'm a bigger fan of than Donnie's, but we'll, we'll get to that. But first, I just want to take you to the first two paragraphs of the book from the preface, just to sort of set the scene from uh, Grandmaster Fisher. He says, the 60 games annotated in this volume were all played during 1957 through 67, and with the exceptions of numbers 44 and 50, under strict tournament conditions, the notes frequently include references to additional games, occasionally presenting them in full. An interested reader will find 34 of my earlier efforts in Bobby Fischer's Games of Chess, Simon & Schuster, 1959. All of the 60 here offered contained for me something memorable and exciting, even the three losses. I've tried to be both candid and precise in my elucidations in the hope that they would offer insights into chess that would lead to fuller understanding and better play. Finally, I wish to express my gratitude to Larry Evans, friend and colleague, for his invaluable aid in the preparation of this text, as well as for his lucid introductions. Robert J. Fisher, New York City. And then they have a quote that uh, on the next page that says, On the chessboard, lies and hypocrisy do not survive long. The creative combination lays bare the presumption of a lie. The merciless fact culminating in a checkmate con- contradicts the hypocrite. That's from world champion Emmanuel Lasker. I understand Larry Evans liked that quote quite a bit and that he included it in some other books. Uh, okay. So do you think he picked that quote? I strongly suspect it. Um, I actually, uh, this national master, Nick Conicello told this to me maybe 30 years, a long time ago. And uh, so I assume he was right. Cause he generally knew that kind of thing that this quote was always uh, included. And um, I guess he was using it as evidence that uh, Evans had more, uh, you know, Evans, I guess said he was just the editor 
basically. But I think I suspect that he had a a little bit more to do with the pros in the games than maybe uh, like uh, maybe he was admitting because some of the vocabulary and just the way things are put is a bit uh, more formal, even than Fisher when he was writing something formal. Um, like, a, I mean, there's not that many other examples of formal writing, but for example, like a protest letter or something like that. <laughs> just for example. Um, <laughs> for, for example. I mean, I just, I happen to, because I read Profile of the Prodigy, I, uh, you know, they give some, some stuff like that in full. Um, so not that that's a bad thing. I mean, that's uh, an editor, certainly very valuable. I know you love the introductions and um, I like them. I find it a little weird though, maybe per, sort of for the reason you mentioned that, they're written in the third person and it's just a little strange to me before every game to have this like third person view when it's Fisher's book. One thing I do like a lot is that every game has a name, which, um, because you know, you could say to someone in the chess world when the Maroxi didn't bind and they know you mean this game against Lombardi from, I think it's the 6061 U S chess championship, but you don't have to say all those things. You can just give the name from the book. Um, and uh, that's like a cute shorthand. But the story of the game, you know, it's always a little artificial to tell the story of a game of chess, in my opinion. You know, sometimes it's true. Everything was going along normally and there was some colossal blunder. But most of the time, it's, you know, back and forth quite a bit. So, yeah, I hear you. I just feel like people people need help. You know, everyone loves a story. They need an anchor. I need an anchor. I mean, Larry Evans was a grandmaster. I'm I'm a decent player, but like for me, it, it just helps to have these tent poles. Um, granted, it it uh, granted it you know influences me some, but I also think he was just a good writer. I mean, he just he, like the 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 intros are very poetic. So I get what you're saying, but one could easily skip them if they want. And for someone for someone like me, um, if I just sort of die, like I already said that I wish that there were more sort of narrative in the book generally. So without that snippet, if it was just straight up games and of course with Fisher's analysis, um, to me, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be as memorable. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I'm not, you know, I certainly I've read them all multiple times, so I don't give the impression that uh that I, I don't enjoy reading them. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's just a personal preference thing. Um, so, you know, it's hard to even put this, this book into themes. I mean, of course we could talk about Fisher's playing style. Um, uh, you already mentioned a little bit that he was, he was pretty versatile. I mean, there, you know, as you mentioned, there's lots of slug fests. I love the openings that are in this, this book. I'm not sure if you share that level of enthusiasm about sort of some redundancy with, uh, Nidorfs and King Din- Kings well, Indians. I, that was one. I have that as a quibble with the book that actually it doesn't bother me that much because first of all, I like playing the white side of the Rio Lopez quite a bit. Uh, maybe because this is one of my formative books. You know, I'm like uh, have very happy to play against the Trigorin variation. I don't know if that's <laughs> right. even Night A five. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the the Nidorfs certainly those are going to be exciting games. Um, and uh, so if you're an E four player, that it's Great. I mean, and if you play the King's Indian defense and the Grunfeld defense, um, that, then that then that's great. I mean, I could see some people are there are people out there, you know, who they like to play over games from the openings they play. So if you're someone like that and, uh, you know, you want to see a lot of Queen's Gambit declines, there are a couple, I think, uh, like against Shevsky, maybe he's on the black side of one. Um, but 
Um, obviously, this is not going to be the book for you then. Because <laughs> this is before. I guess this is goes hand in hand with um, the fact that these are not from Fisher's final spurt to becoming world champion, where I think probably most listeners know he crushed this interzonal in Mallorca. Then he uh, beat Taimanov 6-0. He beat Larson 6-0. beat Petrosian 6 and a half, 2 and a half. And then I think the score against Spassky is 12 and a half, 8 and a half, something like that. Um, but the point I'm making is that in that last period, he played tons of new openings. Um, at this point, his, his opening repertoire is still quite narrow. Um, although for most people, I mean, I don't know why you would have a broad opening repertoire um, unless you're like already quite a good chess player. I mean, I would think you'd want to play basically the same openings every game, especially because your opponents are it's very unlikely to be preparing for you. Um, yeah, it seems tough in this day and age. It's hard enough to keep track of like one repertoire, let alone multiple. Yeah, um, although yeah. I should I should say as a disclaimer that I, for relative to my playing strength, I know less about like the opening than almost anybody in the world. Like I don't know, I basically have no opening repertoire, but um, and I think that. The uh, the value of of the opening is overemphasized in general, and it's especially overemphasized now for sure. I mean, you know, they make it sound like if you were to read anything, like everyone has these incredible opening preparation. I'm sure that is true at, at some level, but it just can't be true at an amateur level. I mean, because um, it's just there's no way you could memorize all these lines. I mean, we know some people in common. I guess I won't, you know, put him, subject him to being named in this podcast, but we know one German grandmaster who basically told me he just remembers every single thing. It, he just remembers it. And then I saw him, he was on a, a uh, grandmaster's fiddler said there was a time in his life when if you had told him that it was possible that he could forget something that he knew, he would have thought that you were insane. Um, so this is a long way of saying you should have a narrow opening repertoire in Donnie Ariel's opinion, um, unless you're already quite an accomplished chess player um, and you're going to, you're going to do a lot better. So if you want to copy Fisher's openings, okay. You know, the night off is a bit sharp, but uh, other than that, um, I'd say definitely go for it. Yeah. Certainly your understanding of the Roy Lopez in particular, um, the Nidorf, the theory and the ideas have changed a lot over time. Um, he was trotting out the Sozin, which, you know, I mean, people still play, but is not as popular, although he did try. He did try some sidelines. One thing I like, I mean, so he does have little bits of personality that shine through. I mean, first of all, he's got sort of like the New York staccato in some of his comments. But I also like that on the few occasions when he does play a different opening, he'll always give himself an exclam, like he yeah. plays the Nimzo Indian, yeah. you know, to get someone off guard. <laughs> like two e six gets an exclam. He plays the exchange Roy um, for an, for a change and like Bishop to x c six exclam. So, yeah. <laughs> he uses the exclamation mark actually differently than other chess right. He uses it, of course, for a good move, but he also uses it exactly as you're saying, like sort of just to like give an, an emphasis. There's actually even one time where it's uh, some active move, like some active break. He gives it an exclamation mark, and then the note is more prudent would have been to do this other thing. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> but what he's saying is like full steam ahead. Yeah, basically, um, it's like if he was playing yeah. over the moves, he would bang that move. Yeah, is what, exactly. is what it means. Exactly. And he also gives a lot of variations where he says sharper is, which I found very interesting because he's not saying better is. He's just saying, like, you could play more aggressively and that it's sort of a stylistic choice, um, uh, whether you do that or not. But, uh, but yeah, that's funny with his uh, exclaims. And he gives a few double exclaims. Those are definitely very good moves when he... 
when he gives it a double X clam. Okay, we are back from unprecedented technical problems. Donnie's internet went out. Don't blame me, Ben. It is my fault. But... It's that New York All internet. Right, as, a, as a former <laughs> resident, I remember it well. And yeah, it's just kaput. So we decided to finish on Skype. So I apologize if the sound is slightly different, but Donnie is loud and clear, and we're just going to power through and resume with quotes. So we, we had just been discussing how Fisher has a unique... Um, unique language, very sort of um, um, New York style brief writing in terms of describing things. And we wanted to share a few quotes. I'll go first. I actually may end up sharing Donnie's quotes as well, since we're he's going analog here. Uh, so number one, of course, we haven't talked much about individual games that much yet. One game that obviously gets a lot of mention is the Fisher Larsen game, the famous uh, Yugoslav attack, Sicilian dragon that um, just iconic H4, H5. So one quote, of course, is he won't get a second chance to snap off the bishop. Now I felt the game was in the bag if I didn't botch it. I'd won dozens of Skittles games in analogous positions and had it down to a science. Pry open the H file, sack, sack, mate. So for those of you familiar with the game, that's that position where his bishop was on D5 and the knight can trade for it and he retreats us to B3 and he just proclaims the game over and then proceeds to end it. And Donnie, I know that's a game that you've mentioned to me over the years. Um, how um, what, Do you have anything to add about it? Sure. I mean, I used to show that game to kids a lot. And um, there are a few games in the book that are good for that. I mean, certainly Fisher Fine is another one that comes to mind because it's so so short. But um, the Larson game is also very good because it's uh, a Yugoslav attack against the dragon, as you said. Um, but it's maybe clearer than like some some modern examples. Um, I also like he in that game he also he quotes Tarish as uh, saying before the ending the gods have placed the middle game. And the context is he's talking about if the bishop on b3 is captured, he's going to capture away from the center. Um, C takes B instead of taking with the A pawn. And he says that that formation is very, very safe for the king, even though the ending is losing. Uh, you know, you have to survive to get to the ending. And I always, I just found that very interesting always that he thinks that it, it's so safe. I mean, I guess he's right. I mean, it's certainly true in chess that, um, you know, these pawn weaknesses are not, or, you know, having a bad pawn structure is not going to, um, not going to kill you as long as you mate the guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a, that is a terrific game. Yeah, it's, it's a super fun game. Probably one of the more famous games from, from this book. Donnie, what do you think are the most famous games in this book? So I think I was thinking about that. I think the most famous game is probably the game against, well, there's, there's two. I think the game against uh, Robert Byrne from the 1963-1964 U.S. Championship, where um, it looks like, probably most people know this game, it looks like Fisher is uh, going to get give two pieces for a rook, but then he actually takes the bishop on g2, and, uh, and then it turns out it's, it's winning because he has a light square bishop that has uh, no opposing bishop to challenge it. Um, that game won a brilliancy prize, and I think they, the uh, the title of that game is more witchcraft than chess. More witchcraft than um, that. I'm probably uh, I should have had it in front of me here. Um, Oh, they just called it the Brilliancy Prize. I think um, it's a quote in the introduction, which I guess I claimed I don't like, but maybe I do, since I remember it all these years later, that um, someone commenting said it was more witchcraft than chess because the position is very, very symmetrical, and White played very, very quietly, and um, Fisher somehow whips up an unstoppable attack. Um, and I guess the other game, so I think the moves of that game are the most famous. I think the game against Botvinnik is also an extremely famous game from... 
the Olympiad, where Fisher was winning, or I mean, for him, he had a winning advantage, right? He's a lot better. But Botvinnik managed to make a draw. If I'm recalling the analysis correctly and the computer's analysis, I think Fisher had a good night against a relatively bad bishop. And I think once they got into the pure rook ending, it was um, it was a lot better for Botvinnik. But I want to be clear that I'm not I, I'm not I'm not talking in absolutes because obviously a lot of people have analyzed this. You know, famously Kasparov analyzed it also, and now we have the computer. Um, but in practical terms, I think that was basically what happened. Um, there's certainly a lot of very famous games. I mean, there's this, this game Fisher Tall from uh, his first candidates, where it's Sozin against the Nidorf, and Fisher's like almost winning, and then he plays the wrong move, and then he's worse down a piece, and then he loses. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that those are probably the most famous. Do you have any other that come to mind, Ben? Uh those, I think you pretty much covered them. I mean, one thing we should note is the the game of the century, quote unquote, is not in this book, uh, the fame, the other famous Fisher burn game. Um, but bringing it back to Fisher Botvinnik. Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, bringing it back to Fisher Botvinnik, um, I kind of went down a rabbit hole in 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 terms of uh, just reading about it. There's been so much. So in addition to Kasparov writing about it, Carson Mueller recently wrote something on chess base about it. You know, to this day, people are still debating at what points was he winning the end game at what points wasn't he. And of course this game was adjourned at a certain point and Fisher's up all night studying it. I mean, and then studying it days later and uh, there was, you know, he was just really disappointed that he lost that game. He talked a lot of trash about Pavinik. Um So, it's um it's yeah it's just a very storied game in chess history because he always said that he could beat botvinnik and this was his one chance on board one of the olympiad they weren't even sure if botvinnik was gonna show up to play him because the soviets were so much stronger than the russians so there's so many little subplots and uh there's a quote that Karsten Mueller had in his his chess pace article of a, a letter that Fisher wrote to uh, Zuckerman, Zuck the book, his friend regarding this game, um, which I think gets to what you were saying about what what his um, what his writing style was like as to pose, as opposed to what some of the potentially edited or dare dare someone say ghost written parts by Evans would say, although certainly some of the wording obviously is very Fisher, but some of it isn't. Anyway, here's what he wrote to Zuckerman about that game against Botvinnik. The first half of the tournament I played well, but in the second half I really potsed up one game after another. Botvinnik could have safely resigned against me, but I fell into this obvious silly cheapo you can imagine. He looked like he was dying all through the game. He was gasping, turning colors, and looked like he was ready to be carried out on a stretch and then he has in all caps but when i blundered and he caught me in his trap he was the old botvinnik again he buffed out his chest strode away from the table as if he were a giant etc so just great color and shout out to agadmater he has a recap of course of this iconic game and he mentioned that there's a 20 second video of the very end of the game which i watched as well um, you can't totally see the tears in his eyes, but apparently Botvinnik wrote somewhere that Fisher had tears in his eyes when he walked yeah. away. I mean, no one loved it and wanted sure. it more than Fisher, so it's totally believable that after sure. a game of that magnitude, he would react that way. I think, uh, you know, Frank Brady uh, wrote that Botvinnik, uh, or he quoted Botvinnik as saying that, that drawing that game brought him more pleasure than winning the return match against Hall. So, uh, 
it was a significant game for both of them. Yeah, that, that's a great quote. Um, so yeah. do you want me to read one of your quotes, Donnie? Because I know that, that you're forced to, your notes were on your phone and now you're on your phone. You want me to hop into your next oh. one? Uh, well, uh, I have one in front of me um, okay. against, uh, I might be mispronouncing his name, uh, Zabo. Um, at the end of the game, it's basically a short game where uh, Fisher's on the black side of a King's Indian, and White makes basically makes one really bad anti-positional move, and he ends up losing because of it very quickly. And uh, the quota is, White's pawns fall like ripe apples. I'll never forget the disgusted look on Zabo's face as he took his king and just sort of shoved it gently to the center of the board, indicating his intention to resign. Um, so I, I like this because, you know, as a chess player, I guess people have different motivations. And, you know, Fisher famously said, I want to crush their ego. Um, and uh, that appealed to me as a young man, definitely. And, you, you know, you see it there that he... Uh, he seems to take a, a bit of delight, I, I would say. I mean, it's understated the way it's written, but in the fact that, that this guy has been like totally crushed, you know? Yeah, um, and there's there's hints of that throughout. And to, to get back to what I was saying about my, again, extremely mild critique of, of this book is I just want more, more, you know? Because, I mean, I'll, I'll never understand playing like him or, or the feeling of being there. But when he writes about the feeling or when any top player writes about the feeling of being there or talks about the feeling of being there, they can sort of put me in a place where when they calculate, you know, 20 moves ahead flawlessly, it's just it's not as human to me. So I love the human side of the stories and those little nuggets are great. And there are there are, to be fair, a fair amount of them um, of the sort of classic Fisher shoot from the hip um, descriptions in this book. But it's just I, I want even more. Um, and my Fair next enough. quote, my next quote also is one of one of these quotes. So he's, it's from his game against uh, Petrosian. And he says, uh, right after I made this move, Petrosian offered a draw. I was ready to accept, but Tall happened to be standing there at that instant, hovering anxiously since a drawn result would practically clinch first place for him. So I refused, not because I thought White had anything in this position, but because I didn't want to give Tall the satisfaction. And he goes on to win this game. This is in Bled 1961. He's only 18 years old. I think you mentioned earlier that he finished second at all in this tournament, but was was in contention till the end. Beat out Petrosian, Karras, Gligorich, etc. So amazing result. But I love the I love the feeling there. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And, um, and there's something uh, I've in an end game. You know, I feel like uh, uh, Tall and Fisher were known to have a an a decent relationship later in life, but in Endgame, when Fisher was first coming on the scene, uh, Bra- Frank Brady sort of describes Fisher haranguing him um, at times, like at tournaments, because he was sort of unkempt in the way that he dressed. So I can just sort of imagine. You mean Fisher haranguing Tall? Or no, 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 no. Tall haranguing Fisher because t- t- yeah. Fisher's younger and he's the outsider. And, you know, so it's just kind of, and Tal's like got along with everyone. So it's kind of easy to see. And you can sort of get those uh, undertones when he says he didn't want to give Tal the satisfaction, but it's not as sure. explicit. I want to see him say like, I, you know, I, I wanted to crush him, you know, like I couldn't stand him, that sort sure. of thing. Even if later their relationship changed. I mean, Tal did beat him, uh, I think, 4-0 in, uh, in his first candidates match. Yeah. And, you know, famously signed an autograph, uh, signed his own name and signed Fisher's name, um, you know, pointing out that he crushed the guy so badly. So, I mean, I'm sure Fisher found that very convenient to lose 4-0. But, you know, what can you do? Also, uh, you know, they say in, um, 
was it Curacao? I guess it was the next candidates in Curacao where Tal had to go to the hospital. And uh, apparently Fisher was the only person who visited him there. And there's some photographs of Fisher playing chess with him in the hospital. I've always assumed they were from there. Um, so, yeah, I think they did probably have, uh, they were, were probably friendly, I would, I would think. I mean, you know, obviously Fisher is sort of a unique individual. Um, but, you know, that says something. Yeah, and sure. Fisher was just so young at the time. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure things changed over the over the years. I mean, that's another. I mean, every game against Tal in this book is is very famous. But obviously, Fisher uh, finally manages to beat him. Uh, where Tal makes a mistake in the opening, a little inaccuracy, and then Fisher's able finally able to drive it home. And you can tell he's very very happy about that. Yeah, um, and f- you know, there's all these other games where he's drawing and, and where he loses a game. Yeah, and Fisher was just grinding so hard on the openings generally. I mean, that's one area where he, you know, all the work that he put in and his obsession of reading every book over the, under the sun, learning to read in Russian so that he could read chess books, um, that sure. was, that was an area that really shone through. Uh, so That you're... was an interesting practical observation. He So Tom makes this move that is objectively not a good move, and Fisher's looking at him, and Fisher says, like, he can't tell if Tal is sure he's like, he doesn't know is Tal panicking already. Does Tal know that he's blundered? He says he's not sure if Tal realizes if he's has been careless or not. Like it's not so obvious, right? It's like, it's not like a one move blunder. Um, it turns out he did make a mistake. Um, but, uh, I just like that the way that scene, is, scene looks. Um, so your next quote, uh, Donnie is the scorpion sting at the tail at the end of the combination versus Lombardi with Bishop H4. Yeah, I always like that. I think about that sometimes, you know, when I'm when I'm playing. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's a position where there's you know combination and uh, basically not to give all all the details, it would be a little much. But there's a knight on d5 for white, and there's a bishop on e7. And if it's white's turn, he can play knight takes e7 check, and, and he's going to be winning, um, or at least that much the better. But so. Uh, but it's Black's turn, and he can play Bishop H4 check, and you know you have to see that move way, way, way in advance. So I don't know. If there's a practical lesson there, except that you know you have to see to the end, which is not a, you know, it's not maybe such a great insight. Um, <laughs> but uh, but that was a good game too. I mean, Lombardi made a, uh, I guess with Fisher, Fisher, I think he uses the phrase a gross blunder more than once. Yeah, and. Um, they got an ending where it looked to me like probably Lombardi's able to draw. Um, he's done the exchange for a pawn, but his, uh, his bishop is very solid. It seems like, I mean, maybe for sure would win. Who am I to say the game's a draw? But, um, you know, Lombardi made this mistake where it allows Fisher to transfer, get, uh, get into king and pawn ending, which is winning by force. Um, so that, that was a very good game, too. When the Maroxi didn't bind. Yeah, yeah. As I know you... na- nowadays nobody fears Maroxi Bonds, but, you know, for, for most of chess history, they did. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. Um, yeah, and that gets me thinking when you mentioned that the combination occurred at the tail end. Um, earlier when you were saying, like, even at the Grandmaster level, a lot of games are decided by combinations. I mean, yes, they're decided by combinations, but often that's what it is, is, like, someone just saw one move farther but you don't realize it until the end, like uh, as as in the the Fisher Geller loss that that we'll be discussing in a bit. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a common theme and definitely a great line to keep in mind. Um, I got one more quote that I have to share. I mean, well, two more because we have to mention Best Buy Test. I love that Fisher's like an unabashed E four fanboy. Like he just has <laughs> utter disdain for other moves. Like I mean, it yeah. takes it takes me to like a more innocent time, you know, like. It reminds me of like when 
you know, when you're kids, you like to argue about like, you know, who's the best basketball player or something, or who's the greatest chess player of all time or whatever it may be. And then as you get older, it's like, who cares? You know, you like, you know, people have different opinions. We've all come to accept that. Um, But Fisher, like, you know, first of all, he was relatively young, but second of all, like he was just so engrossed in chess that, you know, he, I love that he just has, whether he's right or not, I just love the spirit of being disdainful of any sure. other first move. I mean, of course he did mix it up, you know, at the, the final stage where he, you know, was clearly the best player in the world. He started mixing up his openings. I mean, played B3, C4, all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. But, famously uh, springing for, for C4 sure. on Spassky. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just fun. His personality shines through a little bit with that. One other quote I had was where he's just giving a variation. So he says, objectively best is, and he gives a bunch of moves. Um, and this is in Fisher Bulbachan, 1962. Of course, caveat, obviously I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Um, he says, but I was hoping to win in the middle game. So I didn't play that sequence that went to an end game. Ironically, I wouldn't have been awarded the brilliancy prize had I chosen the best line here. They don't give medals for end game technique. So huh. yeah, because he got to end that's, it with a that's nice. That's very true. Yeah, he got to end it with a nice combination. But if he had played objectively best, it wouldn't have happened. Um, and you've got another quote here, Donnie. Do you want me to hop in and read it, or because um, they're pretty short? I don't um, know if you can freestyle them or not. Sure. Well, the one I was was thinking of and uh, was uh, in his game against Walther, which I, I find this to be one of the most interesting games in the book. This guy, Walther, so this is in Zurich, 1959. He's described uh, in the intro as, uh, quote, a minor European master. So, you know, this guy is not one of the stronger players in the tournament. Uh, he finished uh, 14th out of 16. Um, he made a few few draws. He won a couple of games. But definitely Fisher's a lot better than this guy. And um, the quote is, but Fisher puts it in quotes, okay? He says, any resemblance to chess is purely coincidental. Now, that's a phrase that people you know, you seem to use around the chess clubs quite a bit. And uh, I was curious more, uh, I couldn't figure out who said it from looking on the internet, uh, who should really originally be attributed to. Um, So if any of the listeners know, I I think that would be great to find out. So what's interesting about this game is, I mean, Fisher really gets crushed. Like he is, he's just completely crushed by this guy. And he, a couple of times he mentions if the guy plays the move, where it, like he in there's many ways to win, but if he plays a move that indicates like he knows this winning plan, Fisher's just going to immediately resign because he has absolutely no count for play. He can barely win anything, and it's over. But somehow Fisher manages to get to a bishop for opposite color ending where he's down two pawns. Um, they are connected past pawns, and somehow he, he swindles the guy and he draws, and it's just just sort of amazing to see because they're you know that that is a very true to life game, right? Who hasn't had a game where they're playing someone much higher rated than them. And it just seems like, of course, you're going to win this game. And somehow the good player makes magic. Somehow you find something. So you, you really can see a lot in that game about Fisher's Fisher's not giving up because I mean, it's pretty awful. Like he could definitely have resigned that game and nobody in chess history would criticize him for it. Um, but he didn't lose. So I guess that goes to show. Um, was that the quote you're thinking of, or was there? A, yeah, that was one the there? one. You also have a couple quotes from Tarash and a couple things from Brady, um, just from your extra credit reading that you did. Oh well, glad glad to get credit for that. Um, <laughs> oh, I think I said uh, I Spassky's quoted as saying, uh, "When you play for sure, it's not a question of if you win; it's a question of if you survive." Um, which yes. I guess probably mo- most listeners know this, right? But and we sort of touched on it when when we were talking about the interzonal. 
But Fisher famously is playing every game to win, no matter what the terms of the situation is. Now, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure he did consider the terms of the situation in some more extreme circumstances. But basically, he's play, playing every game to win. Um, and uh, just so I like that one. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's it for the direct quotes. Um, did you have any more? No, I think that pretty much covers it. And I wanted to get get into some more, just mention a few more games. I mean, there's so many. One other note I just wanted to add that I forgot to mention earlier about the Fisher-Botvinnik game was that Fisher refuted Botvinnik's like home cooking over the board. I mean, uh, so earlier in the game, Botvinnik had this line that he'd prepped for months and he'd been looking at with his team of seconds. And Fisher found this um, base, this intermezzo where he puts his queen, like a kamikaze queen move that, that, uh, Queen takes f4, where he basically refuted the opening over the board. And that again shows, and that was not a preparation case. That just shows sort of his ingenuity and his trust in in his own instincts. Um, and yeah. so, so much, cool. yeah, his opening play is definitely, even now, like now it's not as striking, but it was so far ahead of its time. Yeah, you know, he claimed in the book that he played, I think you may have, I don't know if you mentioned it, like he, he just played the Grunfeld on the spur of the moment. Yeah. He has sort of, Fisher has this reputation that like these super big games that he plays the Grunfeld, um, it's probably an artificial narrative being imposed because he won the, you know, the game of the century against uh, Donald Byrne with the Grunfeld defense. But it's just funny that he's like at the spur of the moment going to whip out the Grunfeld. You would think that that would be, or maybe he mentioned the glint in Botanik's eye that he's prepared for the King's Indian. I mean, it's just, just funny, right? It goes to show this is, it's part science, but part art. He just, just felt like playing this and he did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotta admire it. Um, so a couple other of my favorite games, and of course it's very, it's very hard to pick. Although as, as I mean, we should mention, I didn't feel like every game that was in the book needed to be, it could have been 52 most memorable games or 52 memorable games. Excuse me. <laughs> wow. Fighting words. <laughs> um, but there's there's some amazing ones. And one of my favorites was uh, Fisher Gligorich in, in 1959. So this is a lesser known dragon, lesser known than Fisher Larson, which is not saying much. But um, another opposite side castling game. There's so much sort of swashbuckling chess in the, in this book. Um, and this one, Fisher surrendered his dark squared bishop uh, voluntarily, which is basically sacrosanct in any sort of dragon structure. And it subsequently hasn't really held up well like the again the engine calls it a mistake Kasparov Kasparov did like a video analysis of it and he said basically it was great for its surprise value because it was an opening novelty at the time but it's not objectively a good move but it sort of underscores Fisher's willingness to um, challenge orthodoxy um, and you know his willingness to trot out his own ideas, and obviously, you know, when you're super genius and you're obsessed with chess 24 hours a day, why wouldn't you you trust your own ideas? Um, Maybe I'll read I'll read the note that because um, he he mentions what other people contemporaries said about it. Oh yeah, yeah with Kotov, um, yeah, yeah. He wrote, uh, Bronstein was so impressed with this concept that he enthusiastically gave my 13th move two exclamation marks, claiming it was virtually the winning line. Alexander Kotar. I'm uh, sorry, Alexander Kotov, the commissar of chess criticism in the Soviet Union, wrote with more sober restraint, it is difficult to agree with this. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. And I think on, on the engine, just to give listeners some context, it's like it's like more than a one point swing, this move. Like it's um by by modern standards, it, it's not judged so well. But I mean, he crushed the guy. So what's more important, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well. 
fair point. And, and he had a good line in the analysis of this game. He has another Rook takes H5 sacrifice. He actually missed one a few moves earlier in this game. So he had a, a absolutely devastating Rook takes H5. Uh, similar, for those not familiar, this is a Sicilian dragon structure where um, you pawn storm the king side and the knight on f6 gets when you play g5 it gets displaced to h5 and if you have the h file open you give up your rook in order to open up the g file so he famously did this in the larson game but then here in the gligorich game he also plays rook to h5 and says i've made this sacrifice so often i feel like applying for a patent hmm. um so uh, well, what are the games you don't like, by the way? If you, if you have a list, I, I don't know if you. I uh, don't have a list because they're they're not as memorable. I mean, there was none that that I just hated. It was more just in my not as thorough as I would like to like it to be. Sort of second reading. There were some some books that just didn't some games that just didn't resonate with me this time around. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't like the Olufsen game, which I think I already mentioned. Uh, just I don't know. I, so I used to try. I played the King's Indian, and uh, I decided I was going to learn to play the King's Indian by playing over all of Fisher's games with the King's Indian. But then I soon discovered that Fisher basically got a horrible position almost every game <laughs> that he played the King's Indian, as far right. as I can tell. And uh, so he's really not such a great, great model for the opening, but he was a great fighter. And in this game, he was just worse. And also, I've like been worse in that like same way so many times. Um, but. There are also games where it's like a one. There's a few games where it's a one move blunder. Like I think the game where Fisher first plays the exchange Rui Lopez. I mean that's a very interesting game because you know he's bringing back this opening that no one's played for a really long time. But the game is decided by a one move blunder basically, uh, like shortly into the game. Um, so I guess you could also you know you could also note the title of the book. It's a little. Is it just? he wanted to have a cooler title than my best games of chess or is he in naming it my 60 memorable games is he making this distinction about that these are his memorable games most memorable most memorable games even though he called it memorable not most memorable um as opposed to his best games and you, you know you see a lot of games from the early period which is clearly you know the period where he's the most impressionable he first goes to europe um so perhaps that could could explain some of that Right, he plays this exchange relifts for the first time, so he's uh, excited about it. So even though the game may not have that much meat in the end, um, it's still one a very memorable one for him. Um, but I guess I'll leave that to, to others who who probably have more insight in that respect. Um, yeah, it's so hard to I, say. It's so hard to say just because, I mean, any book writer will tell you that they often they don't even sometimes they don't get to decide the title, and this one in particular. Um, it had, uh, it had so many titles along the way, my, um, that like when it was 52 games, it was going to be called something else. So it, it's really hard to say. And it's funny that I, I always reflexively call it my most memorable games, because to me, that makes more sense. I mean, of course, uh, Frank Brady has mentioned and others have mentioned Fisher had an amazing like memory as, as do most top players. So the idea that he would only have 60 quote memorable games is absurd. So most memorable makes more sense. So it is, it is a strange wording. Well, it sort of implies that the other games were not memorable, right? These are the 60 memorable ones. And then the other games are therefore not particularly memorable. Um, I don't know if that that's probably not actually the case, um, but at least that's what I guess what one person I discussed it with was was their view. 
Um, I don't know if there's any other games that like I, w- I would take out. There's some like like the the Night H three against the um, in the Italian game, if you know what I mean. Like uh, E forty five Night H three Night two six Bishop's E four Night H six Night G five, and um, then uh, when when White gets the chance to retreat his knight a few moves later, and this, of course this is depending on the, the audience knowing this opening, um, he puts his knight on H three. Um, the computer hates that, and yeah. like if you look at it with a computer and you look at the notes, then he looks he just looks really dumb. I mean, those are the games that I think if you play it over with it, there are some games like that, but if you play it over with the computer, then his notes look particularly dumb. And probably that's why I hate the whole thing. <laughs> I hate it's a little strong, but, but the point is if you play it over with the computer and every, every move he thinks he's somewhat better in trying to win and the computer thinks that it's like one pawn advantage for his opponent, it seems a little bit silly, but I don't know. Most of these games are wonderful. I mean, Rossellino game, I really, I don't think I appreciated when I was uh, a kid, but uh, I know for sure it gladdens the heart of all chess players when Knight goes back to its original square. So he plays in a wild position, whereas King's, it's a McCutcheon French, his King's like kind of in the middle of the board. He plays Knight G1 from, from F3, so he can get it to H3 and then to F4. Um, that's certainly a terrific game. Um, you know, the, also the, um, the Simul game, the Exhibition Tour game, is also a very good game, which I showed the kids a lot. Uh, against Selly, if I'm pronouncing his name right, probably not, but um, that's certainly a terrific game. Um, so I don't know if there's anything that I would really take take out of this book. Um, okay, but, fair point. But history will history will forgive you. The listeners will forgive you, Ben, for this <laughs> sort of heretical view that uh, you know. I mean, I one thing that really so I don't. I always felt a little bit dirty because I read this version of Alakine's games. Um, which included in some of, I think it was Nunn's edits and comments, but, the, but what I felt dirty about was they cut out like ha- a lot of the games. Like in, if you were to go back and look at uh, Alakine's original multi-volume Best Games of Chess. Um, so I guess that's just a way of sort of reiterating that, uh, that we shouldn't make changes to this book, which is, uh, I think you may have mentioned that when... Um, Batsford tried to reprint it originally in algebraic. They made a lot of changes, and people hated that, especially Fisher. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's, uh, you know, he what he said about it probably was, uh, uh, you know, a little bit influenced by mental illness. Like it was probably not a conspiracy to make him look dumb because they made some mistake in a variation. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we'll leave our classics alone. Yeah, I think that um, lesson was definitely learned so that now I read the Kindle version and now it's it's reproduced verbatim except there was like an end of a game that the what that was in the book was wrong, was not what was played. So they fixed stuff like that, but they no longer tried to correct any analysis or anything like that. Um, that's fair enough. One yeah. game I'm a little bitter at is this game 21 against, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing this thing too, but Letelier, which uh, there's a queen sacrifice. Yeah. It's a very attractive game, but one, so what a weird idiosyncrasy Fisher had in his Kings Indians is he didn't like to play D6. He would, he would let white play, um, like, even if you can imagine a position with a white knight on C3, pawn on C4, pawn on D4, pawn on E4, usually you make your move order so that white can't play E5. Um, but he would allow that. And, um, he thought it was terrible, and I think the computer does not prefer that move, but it's not like a losing blunder or anything. I mean, so, like, I remember I had it as black ones, and I was expecting to, you know, win in style. Um, I think this is an assignment against Anatoly Lane, and I did not win in style. Um, <laughs> so that's something that has stuck, stuck with me. Um, so you can tell from that that I would, you know, copy this book 
as much as possible, um, which I think in most cases would have turned out well. Yeah, wow. I was a King's Indian player when I read this book in my teens too. And yeah, I, I had similar experiences where I would just, you know, I love the idea, the the romance of a well-played King's Indian, but my positions were yeah. also just, they didn't turn out that way as often as I would like. Um, I mean, I think it's got to be unsound, right? I mean, someone with the computer knows better than me, obviously, but um, I was I was well over to that camp of, I think Larson wrote uh, in How to Open a Chess Game, basically said it's unsound opening. Yeah, I mean, you don't see it very much at the elite level, but shout out to Kosti Kovutsky. I am in front of the show. I know he's still keeping it real with the Kings Indian. So, I mean, sure. cer- certainly up to up to the non-Super GM level, if you know your stuff, um, you you can make yeah. most, most openings work. Um, don't get me wrong. I still play it every game because I don't know what else to play. <laughs> right, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I never feel good about it. So. Yeah. Um, so another favorite game of mine was uh, Fisher and Geller. Um, Geller, of course, one of the few people who has a positive score against Fisher, and this being one of only three losses included in the book, and it's a miniature. It's one of the only games that Fisher loses. I mean, that I can remember Fisher losing like in less than 30 moves. I mean, and it's it's yeah. another opposite side castling, Sicilian sort of firestorm type game. So just a lot of fun. And Fisher was playing a great game and he just made a blunder. He, like you mentioned earlier, just missed a, missed a move at the end, missed a tactic that, you know, most times he's going to see most time a super GM is going to see. Um, but, but Geller managed to turn the tables on him and he actually had some great analysis in this game. Of course, we've dinged him a little bit for like engines, not agreeing, but in this case, there was one, like, as you mentioned, highly tactical line and I checked it with an engine and it was just spot on. And one of the things I liked about this book, other than just the mere fact that he includes losses in his book, which at the time that this was published was, was pretty rare. But, um, after blowing this game, uh, he his closing quote to the game is quoting Tarash. He says, "It's not a <clears throat> excuse me." He says, "It's not enough to be a good player. You must also play well." Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And um, you know, most people. One of my worst weaknesses, but I I think it's uh, a lot of people have this problem. Is I I tend to play to the level of my opponent a little bit. So if you're playing uh, someone lower rate, it's pretty easy to to let your guard down, and it's, that's something Fisher was particularly good at. Like if you were to look at the um, cross tables from his career, you'll see that he's really crushing the bottom of the field uh, a lot of the time, right? Because he's and that's obviously it's a lot easier to get points from the people at the bottom than the people at the top. Um, all these great quotes from Tarash. I guess, uh, you know, when I was reading some stuff about like, what are the great chess books, uh, you know, critics commentary, they always mention Tarash. Um, maybe you should have someone on to talk about his work. I had never read any of his books. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd love to hear about it. I'm not a big Tarash scholar. Donnie, I got to throw in when, when you talked about playing to the level of your opponent, that's, that's how I managed to draw you twice, even though you deny it. <laughs> Cause you, no, you, I don't deny I only remember one of the games okay. and there was a, sort of an odd moment in the game that I think we've talked about, which was it's like the end of the game. I was higher rated. What did, actually, what did you play? You played like um, Budapest against you once. You played, yeah, Budapest. I think. So, <laughs> but it was getting to the end of the game. It's like a king and pawn ending and I see that it's going to be like stalemate the next move. We were in a scholastic tournament like 100 years right. ago. And so I offered you a draw and you said no with such incredible disdain. Which was just strange because then it's like you say no, like bang the clock or whatever, like looking you like I'm an idiot, and then it's like stalemate on the board. So <laughs> I don't know. And then this other game, you this other game you may have made up. I'm not really sure. I mean, can you say where it occurred? Well, I played you once. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, <laughs> but I played you once at an amateur tournament, like the 
the U.S. Amateur East, and then one set of Nationals, I think. Um, yeah, the game I'm referring to is the Nationals. Okay, yeah. No, I played you at an um, amateur once, and we also drew. I don't remember now, the opening. This but is I, a little bit different because you definitely made one draw, um, but I have noticed a tendency of people to make up draws. Like, several people that definitely never made a draw with me have told me they made a draw with me. And it, but it's not just from... I also, for example, when I was reading all the stuff about Fisher, I came upon Walter Shipman's name, who was the only person to make a draw, for example, with Fisher in, in one speed tournament. Um, and I, the first thing I thought to myself was that I had made a draw with him. But then I saw more about it, and I realized I never made a draw with him. Every time I played him, he crushed me. That's funny, because so, I think I made a draw with Walter Shipman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you may have, you may not have. Right. People have this thing where like, after if they played someone a long time ago a few times, they throw in a draw somehow. But okay. it's possible. All I right. mean, I have no recollection of it. But, All right, we won't torture um, we won't torture the listeners any longer. Um, okay, so moving on to one more favorite game of mine, and this is another super sure. famous one. I talked about it when I interviewed David Howell not that long ago. The Fisher Benko game, which of course is mainly famous for one move, where he plays uh, rook to f six to prevent black from playing f five, sure. and then mates him on the king sure. side. Um, in my uh, intrepid internet research, I discovered a, a few cool things um, on on this. So first of all, Fisher saw this like way in advance, which is um, not surprising. Um, but uh, Jeremy Selman in his uh, extremely uh, critically acclaimed uh, re- biography of Benko has a quote from Benko. So, I mean, this game is like another one that many chess teachers over generations have been showing their students and a very sort of um, evocative idea of, uh, of interference, um, the, the chess tactic interference. But Benko says, everyone thinks that this Rook F6 game against me was something special, but I don't know what's so great about it. I was exhausted for this game. I was up all night necking in a car with a young lady kissing and kissing, but it didn't go beyond that. So the combination of no sleep and frustration led me to losing badly to Bobby. So, huh. Hey, fair enough, I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it mean, is a good game. The other game against Benko was uh, was not correct, according to the computer, most of it. But I think I don't think uh, but that game, the game you're talking about, was uh, basically Fisher was always better, like a much better. And that was also one of the games where uh, where they mentioned this, um, like winning the minor exchange. Yeah, yeah I was going to um, mention that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Fisher really likes his bishops. Um, so it goes bishop g4, six, f3. When Fisher recaptures, he says, oh, now I'm basically saying I won the minor exchange. I have a material advantage here. So it's just it's interesting uh, to see that. You're probably uh, a lot more up than me on what the uh, what like alpha zero and Leela think about uh, bishops. My impression was that they like bishops quite a bit. Yeah, um, I mean, Larry Kaufman, of course, famously gives gives bishops, you know, one of the world's foremost chess computer experts. And he if you have the bishop pair, it's worth like close to a full point, you know, in terms of evaluation. So Fisher was definitely ahead of his time in terms of uh, his bishop appreciation. Interesting. I would say that when you're teaching, I've noticed when people are teaching kids, sometimes these kids are taught like a bishop is three and a half point. I, this is my, just my two cents, so the audience can rebel. But I think that that's insane. Like, when you're dealing with little kids, like, you know, this is not precise. So I wouldn't um, I wouldn't pollute their minds with that idea. Yeah, I've, I've um, pursued that exact line of questioning with a few guests. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it hasn't gone very far, but I agree. It's not worth, it's not worth explaining the difference. I think even possibly yeah. even beyond to, to, to little kids. I mean, it's good to know as an adult, but it's not, it's not likely 
you know, going to decide the outcome of a lot of um, lower club level games. Yeah. There's um, a lot of other great books. There's like Fisher Nidorf, you know, with, uh, which is an H3 uh, against H3 against the Nidorf with Nidorf playing black, which was like a total crush. Um, yeah, yeah, I think he might have given himself an exclam for H3 too. Like just, you know, oh. like on move five or whatever, move six, you know. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> Uh, any possible. other? I mean, you have to enjoy yourself. Sorry. Any other games, Donnie? Um, um, I think I think that's pretty much it. I mean, there's so many that you could mention. Yeah, it's I tough. do find all his losses interesting. So there's three losses. There was the the tall game um, that we mentioned. Then he lost to to Spassky in this King's Indian at Mar del Plata, which um, you, you readers uh, viewers may know that. Um, so it's a King's Gambit, and then. Fisher was very extremely unhappy with uh, having lost this game. He was a lot better uh, than he makes a blunder and he like, basically loses immediately. And then he wrote this article of us to the King's Gambit, um, which I guess he's now been proved um, correct. If I understood from, uh, you know, one of the world leading theoreticians, Jan Gustafsson in, uh, in his show or in one interview, he was talking, basically saying that, that it's over, you know, if you, uh, and anyone can see that if you put it in your uh, engine and you play the King's Gambit and Black takes the pawn, like Black is a lot better already. Um, so Fisher was sort of sort of proved right. And then the last loss, of course, is the one uh, to Geller that you mentioned already. Although he does also beat Geller in spectacular style, and um, that's another game you could could show to kids. Um, you might see that I'm pre- a little preoccupied with what to show to children, um, but I think there's also a lot of chess teachers out there, so they may. They may appreciate that. Are we allowed to reveal your son's name to our audience, Donnie? Ah, now you're causing me a lot of problems. <laughs> okay. So, we'll... um, no, uh, okay. Well, I, I named my son Magnus, but I think there needs some explanation. First of all, I wanted a name that was both a traditional name, like so when they go to get a job, like they have a normal name, but there's also a little bit unusual. Now, in the United States, Magnus is not a very common name. Maybe it'll be a huge chess boom and there'll be tons of Magnuses. Um, it was also one of the few names that were actually the only name that me and my wife could agree on. Um, but when I named him Magnus, I thought that I'm basically excluding him from the chess world, right? Because if he's going to actually be a chess player, then it's like an issue now that his name is Magnus, right? The other little kids might make fun of him, right? It's sort of like I'm resigning to my, myself to the fact that he uh, is not going to be a chess player. Um, and he, he may be a chess player, so I think he's not going to be world champion, which is, a, I think, an appropriate thing to mention in this particular podcast because I always felt that the sort of a, every chess player's implied goal was to be world champion, right? And that's why Fisher was such an attractive role model because he actually <laughs> became world champion. Right. Um, so I was interested in teaching my son chess, but I'm based on... Based on playing with him, I just I get the feeling he's not going to be world, world champion. Okay, so once you're not going to be world champion, then it's kind of like, well, now it doesn't really matter, right? Like, what's the difference? What are you going to be second, third? You know, you know, <laughs> like it doesn't really matter anymore. So he'll just be named Magnus. Other people will appreciate that. It does come up like when he was really little, and I someone said something about Magnus Carlson being trustful champion. He was like maybe three. He said, "Is that me?" You oh, know, funny. It was. Just, it was confusing to him. And also sometimes when I talk about Magnus, I mean Magnus Carlsen. Um, right. Also and he does confusing. that. Yeah. 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 It could be confusing. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, improvement, getting to your point about like, 
if you're going to be world champion or not. Um, one of the improvement takeaways I'd highlighted was like, do the work and be obsessed. But but then when I wrote that and I started thinking about it, I mean, that's obviously a sort of um, a theme throughout the book is that Fisher is, I mean, he there's no other word for it. He just absolutely obsesses over every game he plays. I mean, the notes are not excessive, but, but when he's describing a game, like he'll, he'll, you know, the Botvinnik game, he'll say, well, then I was studying it, you know, two months later. And then I saw this, this, and this, like, he just absolutely pours over his games. And obviously his, his general work ethic was, was well established, but it didn't, it didn't lead to mental health for him. So it's not, I mean, chess players generally seem to be more balanced on the whole these days, but I mean, to reach his heights, it's, it's tough to, to do that well, and, and, you know, have a normal life. Sure. I mean, someone said maybe it was trash too. I'm not sure, but somebody said, uh, of course, you don't have to be crazy to be world champion, but it helps. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's probably great... some, some truth to that. And I hasten to add to the listeners that I have another child and uh, we'll see what happens with her. Um, so I'm not out, I'm not out of it yet. Okay. Okay. Cause even, even though I can't be world champion, I would be extremely happy to have my child be world champion. It's even better, right? You don't even have to play the games. <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's just at the venue being praised by everybody. Um, so shout, shout out to Henry Carlson. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't know what standards apply, but that's for her. But that's another uh, question, I guess. I mean, oh yeah, that that's a yeah, that's a whole separate conversation. Um, so, yeah. in, in closing, what other improvement takeaways would you have, Donnie? I mean, we we've sprinkled a few in throughout this, but but what else could we learn from from an intense study of these games? <laughs> well, I think that uh, in general in life, there's no royal road to learning. Um, and I know that like sometimes it may be possible to like practice or study in a way that's like so dumb that you don't get anything out of it, but I, I doubt it. So I think the main thing is if you're going to read this book, or at least the way I read it as a youth is you have to play over every single note and okay, I skipped a few in the Botanic ending cause it's a little, it was a little boring. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, if, it, if it didn't ruin your life, not winning that game, maybe not every nuance of the Rook ending would be <laughs> right. interesting to you. Um, but you got to, yeah, play over every note. Now, okay, I guess there's a, there's a couple issues. Well, one is, why are we reading chess books at all? And I mentioned before that you have to study things you like. So if you like reading game collections, then that will be very useful. So I don't think you're going to have any problem with you. Now, it is true. I think some one of your previous guests said people know more about chess now. That's true. But if you happen to like Karas for some reason and you play over his game collection, you better you have to be pretty strong before like that difference in strength means anything. So I think that's why you'd read chess books. Because I know, for example, Nakamura, I think, was on your show. He basically said that he'd met, didn't read chess books, or at least that wasn't his primary tool for learning. And I can't say that there's a reason you have to read a chess book, because you have this machine that tells you the right move. So you can play a game and then see what the machine has to say. Um, but nevertheless, I think most people would enjoy reading a book more than uh, computer analysis. And, and there's a few things I would know. First of all, one is the computer analysis is correct in some kind of ob- objective sense, but it doesn't mean that the evaluations it's giving are really right for your games. And what I mean by that is you could easily get a position where there is one line that's winning for you, some tactical line, and you have some messy position. And there's no reason to think that you would 
be able to find that line. So if all the other variations are losing for you, the computer is saying you're winning. But in a, in a practical sense, if you got that position in the game, and of course you weren't privy to this analysis beforehand, what score would you really make? Would you would you make a hundred percent? Would you make fifty percent? Would you make less? I mean, I think you you would make less. Um, so there's something to be said for having some kind of uh, narrative explanation, and also um, to the point of of the computer's moves. One thing I I noticed a lot in reading this book in tandem with looking at the computer analysis was often the computer will give some very, very strange moves. And for example, it'll just like start jettisoning all material right away or something. And that's because it sees some mate coming up. But if you are actually playing the game, you don't need to worry about the variation where the guy just starts giving up all his pieces, right? So you would then, this is an extreme example, but I think, so you might be able to figure out what's going on, but there's certainly a ton of situations where the computer sees everything. So it's playing some very, very strange moves where that you don't care about because in a practical game, they, they don't pose a problem for you, but you need somebody to, you may need somebody to explain to you, uh, unless you're going to really spend a long time going through all the computer variations. What is it that the computer is so afraid of? And that might be an example, a really obvious example would be like you sacrifice a piece. Well, in a practical game, you want to know, am I getting a winning attack or am I getting a position or maybe I'm getting a position where I'm getting the material back or maybe I get some material, but not everything. But if you can see to a position where you got the material back um, and you're doing well, and you know, for sure you have that variation in hand, then and that's really what matters from a practical standpoint, right? So if Fisher might say, and now I'm making something up, I shouldn't pour the Fisher's mouth, but he might say, well, I wasn't worried about this because I knew at least I had this variation. But if you put it into the computer, what you're going to see is like something that's very hard for you to understand. Now, obviously, it depends on your, your level of play, uh, for sure, and also how much time you're willing to put in. But um, I guess this is a long way of saying that I think that this book and any other you know, game collection by a super strong player um, is very worthwhile. Now, I, I should point out that Lombardi, for example, was not a big fan of notes. And his, what he told me I should do to improve a chess is play over every game of every world champion. And um, I made it through Morphe. He was a big fan of Morphe. And uh, I didn't make it past Steinitz, which <laughs> so that's not, not very impressive on my part. Although I did gain appreciation for Steinitz that I didn't have before because I, I can't really see any why I would just randomly play over Steinitz's games. Um, so he didn't like notes because he said it really depends who's writing them. And obviously that's true. Um, I guess the one note I remember discussing with him was some Alakine note where Alakon faced some eccentric move in the opening and Alakon's note as well. I faced this eccentric move and that's why I had to play to refute it. I needed to play this eccentric response and he approved of that note, but uh, cautioned me against all other notes. So uh, I guess I, I think I said it all, but I would be absolutely shocked if somebody studied this book very, very carefully and uh, they didn't improve a lot. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and getting back to sort of the problem I had in trying to trying to properly appreciate this in a month or review it in a month to get ready for, for this podcast. I do think it's the kind of book where the more you put into it, the more you get out of it because I, 
played through the book somewhat casually um, in order to just sort of make sure I finished it. And then a few of the games that I'd highlighted as my favorites, I then went back and looked at in more detail. And like definitely the more the more I dove in, the more I liked it. So, I mean, your philosophical question about chess books, I think they're I think you're right. They're they're probably they can't be 100 percent necessary anymore. Um, but I think most people who listen to this podcast um, have decided that they like chess books. Um, yeah, so, chess players. Chess players are very interesting. In chess books. I've noticed that. Yeah, um, although Jesse Cry, you know, who obviously grandmaster has been on the show a couple times, um, you know, he's adamant that the younger generation. You know, I work when I teach kids; they're closer to beginner level, so you know, we're not even getting to the point of discussing books much. But the the like teenage up and comers, I'm sure he's teaching a lot of sort of you know, 1800 to expert to low master type players, he says he cannot get them to read chess books. So it may be kind of an academic question. I'm sad to report for the next generation, but for... Oh, they have no interest? Well, the thing yeah. is, people are still interested in a Fisher, right? I mean, this is sort of a special case. There's no more famous player than Fisher, and the notes are not too brutal. And I mean, by the way, there, there are a lot of notes that you could skip if you wanted to. And I actually... Maybe you even should. And what I, those, what I'm thinking of in particular is there are opening notes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. You I... could. There are some opening notes where he's just giving another example of a game where he says, "Well, Kara's played this against me," and then he shows 20 moves of the game. I would definitely play over that because he's mainly trying to show you this other game. But if it's some like, especially a sharp opening, I mean, you can certainly play over the moves, but you shouldn't be under you know, any illusion that that's correct. Like for sure there are all the opening analysis is not right. I mean, that's going to be true of uh, certainly many old book. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to appreciate that again, he'd done the work, like that's what framed his perspective. And that's why he, he knew what to do in this position. Cause he's not like, he's not looking it up after the fact, you know, he, he knew going in. Um, but, yeah. It's, but yeah, definitely. I, I, I skipped over those sections, like any opening variation. I wasn't, you know, I would look if he, you know, depending on how bombastic he was in the description, I I might take a look at one or two variations, but I generally wasn't going to um, dive too sure. deep. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and it's hard to even distill this into improvement takeaways because, I mean, so much of it just comes down to, to the moves. I mean, to the way he played. I mean, certainly he was an amazing calculator, um, which comes across, to, you know, the occasional oversight notwithstanding that comes across loud and clear, as you mentioned in the like Botfinic game, which had 14 pages of notes um, and, and 14 pages devoted to the game in the in the original version. Um, but generally, you know, that's that's not a big, big insight. I mean, you, you just see how on a, one of the greatest chess talents of all time thought. So, of course, that has value. Sure. And I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a romance to the game, and obviously this period of Fisher defeating all the Russians is uh, one that people are still very interested in. Yeah. Um, for for whatever reason, they, they are. Um, so I think for most people, they, that would be an additional plus factor that uh, is going to cause them to really enjoy the book a lot. Um, yeah, and and just just one or one or two more things to add. So, Donnie, I think we had a little disagreement. What, what level player do you think could could most benefit from this book okay with the disclaimer that i actually have no idea what these like chess levels are i i said like 1400 and up um or almost any rating i guess uh, i know you think it's for somewhat more advanced players but i would just emphasize for sure he really points out a lot of elementary tactics like it would not be unusual for him to say like 
not not X because of like Queen takes Rook or something like just pointing out to you a one move tactic. Now the reason he's usually doing it is because if not for that one move tactic, then the move that he's criticizing would make strategic sense. Right? so he's actually he's explaining the position by doing that. But nevertheless, you know if you're a less advanced player, that's very useful for him to that he's pointing out all these tactics to you. And that'll be great practice. Now, if you're a 1400 player, how much is it going to help you? Even let's assume that all the notes were right in his ending against Bobnik. How much, how much would it help you to really play over every single note? Um, would you want to kill yourself if you tried to do that? <laughs> okay. Maybe it would be a little bit heavy, but compared to most books, I mean, you're going to have, to me, it will really propel me forward in reading this book or, or any kind of game collection is a feeling of accomplishment of having finished a game. And, you know, you're going to get that fairly quickly um, because they're not, they're not too heavy, the notes. And I don't know. I, I, think, I think that's the case. Why, you think it's for more advanced players only? I mean, I just think the variations are just so hard to see. I mean, so you'll, you'll, get, the, you'll get the feeling of the main feeling you would get is just obviously he's, he's calculating everything, you know, that's important to, to appreciate, but if you're going to sit there at all, what's that? He constantly is saying like, yeah, I played this move. I thought it was going to be good. I wasn't sure. Like, I, okay. But, I mean, feeling... but when he gives a variation, I mean, like when he goes off, you know, and so, and like sets yeah. some trap or something, I mean, it's just so far down the line. Um, certainly. Yeah. How I don't are you know. going to become world champion if you don't play over these variations? I mean, yeah, no, I, I mean, but you know, you if you're if you're going to be bit. world champion, I'm just saying, like, instead of reading it when you're 1400, read it when you're 1800. I mean, of course, you could do both, but but there's a limited amount of time. Um, but again, yeah, but just, what are you what are you going to read instead? I mean, what are you what book are you going to read instead? You're not going to read a game collection. Like, it's fun to read a game collection. It's you know, it feels good to read it. So you can even read it by the way. Uh, like this time I read it sort of in conjunction with profile of a prodigy, which again was a Fisher biography. And then you can see the little more context for each game, which I think he, uh, something that you would have liked. Um, but what are you going to, what are you going to study instead? I mean, my first book, like I remember playing over was, uh, new world chess champion by Kasparov, which was an absolutely ridiculous book to be first book. And uh, I don't, I definitely did not read that whole book. I mean, what I guess you could read a book that's like aimed at a what do you, you could read Zerk fifty three I guess I mean that's less variation yeah I mean that's, that's another very very good book that I read I don't know. Uh, very I'm carefully. thinking more of like logical chess move by move and 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 stuff like that I mean it's you know it's not as um not as historical and might have a few errors but it just explains more okay I mean. I don't know. I just remember I used to work at a chess bookstore, which used to be the Manchester Club on 46th Street. And people would come in and they would sometimes ask what to buy. And um, one woman, very nice lady, uh, um, who you probably, probably everybody knows from the old days playing chess, uh, she wanted a book about strategy, like as opposed to tactics, I guess. Yeah, that's a common and, request. Yeah, so my advice, not very original advice, was she should study Zurich 53. It seems like a you know, it's a can. It was a candidates tournament, and uh, every game is annotated. It's by David Bronstein. I know there's some controversy who wrote all the notes, but but I think everyone agrees that it's a good book, notwithstanding all the same caveats that you would give about computer analysis. And that book, there's not a lot of. There are sometimes variations because sometimes 
you can only prove something with a variation, right, in a tactical position. But by and large, it's mainly prose analysis. Um, so I would say read something like that. Um, but uh, I don't want to sound like I'm being critical of the book you mentioned, Logical Chess Movement, because I never read that book and I don't know what's in it. Okay, and uh, to be it could clear, be a magnificent book. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not saying it's objectively a better book. I'm just saying for for someone around that level, I think it might be a challenge. But again, I mean, I just feel like generally pe- people shouldn't be too, like anyone listening to this podcast presumably is not like an eight-year-old future world champion. So, you know, don't be too precious. You know, it's Bobby Fischer wrote this book um, pretty close to the peak of his powers. Like you should read it, you know, whether it's whether it's the perfect study hack or not. Yeah, I mean, okay. One other thing that comes to mind is that uh, I don't remember exactly how you described it, but basically Lombardi suggests to me that sometimes your the idea that you have a certain rating can hold you like mentally back if you think I'm this, I'm X rating. I love the Zen mode, for example, on Lee Chess, because I don't want to know their rating. Right. I don't want to think about the ratings. That's That's a good approach, but... But okay, I mean, if you if you buy this book and you find that it's too difficult, I mean, I guess that's possible. I mean, maybe my problem with Kasparov's books is that I just find them too difficult. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. And <laughs> like, it's just too many. Like, it doesn't matter if one movie is a little bit better than the next movie. What is what practical significance is that? Um, so you have to enjoy it. Some people definitely do enjoy truth in chess, and um, that's certainly legitimate. But all right. Well, I'm sure people are glad to hear I am elect or possibly not I am elect Donnie or you'll say even you like Kaspar's okay. books. Are I'm not tough. I am elect. As far as I know, I'm not an I am elect. Listen, well, I, I asked I I Kevin never Go. The rating. I asked Kevin Go, who had been in a similar situation. He had the three he had the three GM norms, recent adult improver guest okay. of the show. I said, Is that called an I am elect or a GM elect? And he, as far as he knew, said yes and i've i've done extensive googling and i'm yet to disprove it i got I the opposite results doesn't he have the but he did he have the rating uh no he he, ever... no he had the the norms but not the rating he was he got his third norm and he was seven points short um oh well maybe you're right i don't know i'm gonna I, but I haven't found definitive i'm gonna have to write a letter to fide to, to get to the bottom well, i'm gonna have to start playing again again now how, how many fide points do you need well, I used to just need 11, but now I need uh, something more than that, maybe 25, something a little more, 28. You better get cracking, Donnie. We're not getting any younger. Yeah, it's a problem, and I'm, <laughs> I'm like a little weaker than I All used right. to be. But actually, I was sorry. I know no one cares about this. The way to do it, if you're in a similar situation, is you find another old washed-up player <laughs> who has a rating, and then you play them a match, right? That's the perfect way to do it. Excellent. If any listeners out there, out there are old washed up 2400s and want to play Donnie, uh, give, give him a shout. Do him a solid. He's a good guy. Please, please. Or if anyone wants to discuss filing chapter 11, I'm also available for that. Ah, yes. Bankruptcy uh, lawyer, we should mention. Okay. Yeah. So Please. yeah, we're going to skip Thanks the quibbles. So yeah, we've gone super long. Uh, just a couple housekeeping notes before we, we let you out of here, Donnie. Um, you you generously have refused payment. We have not entirely nailed down wh- to whom the charity payment will go, but we'll we'll figure it out. I'm gonna I'm hoping to do something chess and jails related. I feel especially. I mean, obviously the American incarceration system is uh 
its own topic and uh, people in jail everywhere deserve great sympathy. And I think it's awesome when people pursue chess. So I'd like to find a, an appropriate charity for that if you're okay with it, Donnie, but we'll figure something out. And I also, I, sorry, I'll let you have a turn in a minute. I just want to no, get- No, no, please continue. Okay. Um, I also wanted to mention next month's uh, podcast, we're going to go for a deep cut. I'm going to bring in yet another friend of the podcast whose voice I've never heard. Shout out to Jerry Wells. He's going to join me and we're going to talk about the book Blindfold Chess, History, Psychology, Techniques, Champions, World Records, and Important Games by Elliot Hurst and John Knott. So, I mean, this is a big book. I've got my work cut out for me, as does Jerry, although he's already read it once and I have not. But, I mean, generally, we're just going to talk about uh, that book and also do some blindfold puzzles, give some blindfold tips and just sort of put that in, in context. Cause I know it's a topic of some interest. So Donnie, sorry, what were you going to say? No, nothing. I think you covered everything. Thank you so much, Ben. Sure. Yeah. And listeners, one other thing, there's no blindfold puzzle this month. I apologize. We'll get back to that next month when we tackle blindfold chess generally. Um, so Donnie, thank you for your patience through our technical issues. Listeners, sorry thank if you. the Skype sounds a little worse, but uh, this has been a lot of fun, Donnie. I've been, um, since the day the podcast has was created, I know that Jan Gustafsson and others have been waiting for your debut and it uh, did not disappoint. <laughs> thank you so much. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. Positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, glowing comments on YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1, or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. Sometimes the guests even weigh into these discussions. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is back in action, so lots of ways to stay engaged, as they say. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with all this COVID craziness going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page. I also just put up a little donate directly link on the Perpetual Chess webpage where it says donate. But again, if you're not in a position to donate, I'm happy to have people listening and just enjoying the show. So without further ado, I'd like to give thanks to the people who helped make Perpetual Chess possible. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alhaji, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen. Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harst, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anita Deer, Barry Hessian, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, 
Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood. I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskachek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason. I am elect Donnie Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schu, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jock Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Snod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM, Josh Friedel, IM Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I am Kosciukowski, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Boyowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbeck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube Channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatyev Abrahamian, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.